Welcome everyone to another Blaney's podcast. Uh, we are back in our podcast studio and I'm delighted to have with me as our guest, Roger Horst. Good afternoon, Roger. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. Welcome to uh, our beautiful studios. They are great. Thank you. So today we have a very important and resonant topic for um, our listeners and that is the class actions that are taking place in Ontario. Uh, where we started and where we're going with it. And um, I can say, uh, probably without much uh, qualification, that Roger was one of the pioneers in the class action uh, lawsuits. So uh, without further ado, Roger, why don't you tell us, number one, what is a class action, and number two, how you got involved in it? Well, a class action is a way to resolve a number of claims in one proceeding. And uh, my partner, Bob Potts, and myself were involved in the first uh, certification hearing for a class action in the province of Ontario well over 20 years ago now. And what a certification hearing is, a class action can't get going until a court has certified that it's an appropriate procedure to resolve these claims. And uh, we successfully defeated this uh, a certification motion and uh, at that time uh, we had a fair number of uh, counsel who were trying to work on what's the approach we're going to take to dealing with these and uh, uh, we came up with three uh, purposes for looking at class actions which the court adopted and which are still good law today uh, the three purposes being judicial economy resolving a whole bunch of claims in one proceeding, uh, access to justice. Sometimes you have a whole bunch of people with small claims that's not worth pursuing, but you put them all together and you've got a serious claim. And the last one was uh, deterring wrongdoing. If you have a wrongdoer who can cheat a whole bunch of people out of $10, there's no deterrence from doing it because who's going to go to court for $10? But if you've got a million people cheated out of $10, bingo you've got an action. Well, so there, there, there sets the parameters for what is the, the purpose of the class action. Uh, maybe we can do a little technical so that uh, we can get it out of the way. What are the, the actual technical requirements for a class to be certified? Well, the class action, the class proceedings act sets out a number of uh, steps you have to go through to get the action certified. First of all, of course, you've got to have a representative plaintiff. Uh, that's somebody who can stand in the shoes of everybody else for the purposes of the common issues. So you need to have one or more people with a cause of action which raises some common issues. And test really comes down to um, would the resolution of these common issues in a class action be the preferable way to go? Uh, the other requirement at the beginning is you must persuade the court that you've got a workable plan for dealing with it. Uh, if you have claim but you've got no way to deal with it, for example, if you've got hundreds of thousands of people with slightly different claims, how are you going to deal with it? And uh, of course, uh, the courts have to look at all these and then at the end of the day decide whether or not this should go forward as a class action. So, Roger, how would a class action be put together? In other words, who would be the mechanics who put the various components together in a class action? Without class action counsel, plaintiff's counsel, there's no class action. So what 
made that possible was, of course, the fact that you can get a whole bunch of claims together. And the other thing that happened with the class actions is contingency fees were made part of the process from the beginning. A contingency fee is uh, where class counsel get paid a certain percentage of what's recovered at the end of the day. And if nothing is recovered, they get nothing. So a class action counsel is the first step in this. And they've got to make that determination as to whether or not this is a claim worth pursuing through a class action. So it's the class action counsel who really at the outset determines the risk reward or the risk benefit uh, for him or for the firm that he's involved with. Absolutely. But, and this can sometimes be important, they've got to have a representative plaintiff who's willing to go forward. For example, there was a, a class action that went away that I was defending recently because the representative plaintiff disappeared. No one else wanted to step in. No representative plaintiff, no class action. And the other thing that that is part of it is the, uh, the financing of this and the risks. So um, if you're a representative plaintiff and you go into a certification hearing and costs at the end are awarded a half a million bucks, well, your average person who's pursuing an individual claim, which might not be that much, doesn't want to risk half a million dollars. So the class action counsel are usually now giving some kind of indemnity or working through some funding organization that's going to indemnify this representative plaintiff from those costs. So when you talk about an indemnity foundation or corporation, are these companies set up essentially to finance the, the costs and the fees behind the class action? They, they can be. There is uh, the class action fund in Ontario where you can go and for a certain percentage of what you recover at the end, they will provide you with certain costs for disbursements and an indemnity uh, during the course of it, or you can seek some other kind of funding. So let's say we're uh, using a cell phone plan, and that cell phone plan appears to have charges in respect of our invoicing that we get. Can I come to you and say, uh, Roger, I think every single subscriber to the cell phone plan are being overcharged. Is that the kind of thing that you would consider uh, taking on a, uh, a class action? Well, of course, the first thing you're going to look at is, is it true? Is, is there an actual claim there? Because um, if you put forward a claim which has no merit, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. As a rough and ready rule to look at whether this is the kind of thing which is appropriate for a class action, I like mm-hmm. to say that you, you have a good class action if it's the conduct of the defendant that is critical to establishing the claim. So here, if you've got somebody billing, and they're billing all their customers the same way, that's probably a good class action, if there's something wrong with how they're billing it. If, on the other hand, it's just some error in one bill here and there, well, that's not a class action. It's got to be a common issue which applies to everybody. So if you've got a, a company who's, for example, they've got uh, some government regulation which requires them to bill in a certain way and they're not following that, well, that'd be a good class action. 
So it would fall on whose shoulders to make that uh, or to do those background investigations and fact-finding before they, they launch an action? Well, that's definitely going to be the uh, class counsel. Now, what does happen in, in some cases is um, what, what happens is there's a story in the news or some stock has a precipitous crash for some reason. And then what happens, to be honest, is class counsel start looking for that representative plaintiff to uh, start the action because if there's something that clearly something was wrong, you're just looking for the class action representative. And sometimes, for example, you can get a big scandal in the world and all the uh, plaintiff class action counsel, they all start an action. So you could have, I can recall one uh, action I was involved in involving uh, a stock. Uh, there were 15 firms that started a class action about the same event. How does the court determine which firm will run with this particular ball? Well, you end up having a very interesting creature known as the carriage hearing, and, and the courts don't want to have 15 class actions, so they get everybody together and they try and work it out as to who is going to actually have carriage of this matter, and the court will look at things such as who's got the resources, who's got the ability, and often what happens is the firms will make some kind of an agreement. Uh, for example, there may be a spectacular train crash, as there was in Quebec recently, and eventually the firms decide how they're going to do it together. When we read about or hear about automobile recalls, or automobiles that uh, fail emission tests or in some way fool the emissions test by, uh, by means that are not necessarily legal and appropriate. Is that where a class action lawyer gets interested? Absolutely. And in fact, if you look back to the history of class actions in this province, it was defects in cars, which was sort of the prompting uh, for starting the, the class actions, because you had a situation where you've got a, a problem in a car, but you know one person for their one car at a possible risk isn't going to start a class action and they tried to do it as a representative action and the court said no you can't do it and so that's why the mechanism of a class action was started in the province of Ontario to respond to car defects. So then um, it, it's always a question of whether or not class counsel determines whether this is an appropriate matter that goes to a class action, and they actually become the filter, if you wish, or the guardians of the gate before a class action gets instituted. In many ways, it's the class action counsel who are the plaintiff. They've usually got more at stake than the representative plaintiff. Now, the class members collectively will have more at stake, but they're the ones who are putting up the money and they're the ones who are going to get the reward at the end of the day. Each class member might get $1,000, $10,000. Class counsel might get millions. Right. <laughs> of course, we can see what the motivation is there. And that brings me to a recent case that uh, has now been certified in the United States. Customers would walk into their uh, local Starbucks and see that uh, a cappuccino or a uh, latte would have uh, would be seen to have 30 or 25 or 40 ounces in the cup. And when they measured the amount of foam in that cup, they determined that about 25% of it was not coffee but foam. Apparently, a law firm who managed to get the instruction booklet at, from Starbucks and interviewed one of the former baristas determined that there was approximately 75 cents 
of value that was not being received by each customer. So I presume when you take 75 cents multiplied by, well, how many cappuccinos do you think are served a year in the United States? I'm sure there's millions, billions, who, who knows. But And I understand that that was certified. That was certified, but, but yeah. But there's going to be a few problems with that as oh. you go down the road. <laughs> well, let's talk about First them. of all, yes. um, are you going to find all these uh, class members coming forward with their receipts about how many uh, cappuccinos they purchased that were uh, quote-unquote defective? Is that what you have to do? Um, well, you're going to have to establish some damages unless you're going to just get some kind of punitive award, all right? Now, in the U.S., uh, uh, more often than not, it's the punitive aspect of it which produces the big damages award. So there, you might not be able to prove much uh, for individual class members coming forward, but uh, you might be able to persuade some court toward a large amount of punitive damages. A case like that in Canada, though, has a little bit of a different stick to it because in Canada, we don't tend to award these large punitive amounts. And so there you'd ha you might have a, a good case, but if your class counsel is only recovering a percentage of the damages that are awarded and you can't really prove very much, you know, I, I mean, are you going to go into a lawyer's office and show that, hey, you know, you bought 10 cappuccinos from Starbucks last year and you want your 15 bucks back. But can, can you also do it this way, that uh, you would look at all their cappuccino sales over the last three years, and you would deduct 9%, I'm just picking a number out of the air, that represents the foam in the cappuccino as opposed to the actual coffee. Um, but anyhow, it would only take lawyers to do this who think about how much money the contingency fee would be at the end that makes it work, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. Now, you, you do get certain situations uh, where where you don't need everyone to, to prove real uh, damages. For example, uh, we were involved in a case where there was a, a plastics fire and about 10,000 people were evacuated from their homes for three days. And so uh, all that you had to prove to get is, I think the award, they got $200 for uh, being out of their home for that period of time. So all you had to do is show that you lived in the evacuated neighborhood and your family got your $1,000 or whatever. So that's that's a fairly simple thing to do. Proving how many cappuccinos you bought from Starbucks in a year might be a little more difficult. Of course. In the United States, I think uh, it's more of the Wild West when it comes to litigation. Um, before we leave that topic, I want to talk about the issue of deterrence, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, of being as a purpose of the class action as compared to punitive damages. So can you talk about that? Well, deterrence, the idea there is if you've got, uh, say you've got a consumer product uh, such as a car defect, all right, maybe it costs uh, $150, the part that needs to be replaced in a car. Your average car owner is not going to go into uh, a dealer and go through all the hassle of establishing that there's a defect here for $150. It's just too much trouble, all right? But when you can all band together 
and they've sold a hundred thousand of these cars well now suddenly you're talking about a fifteen million dollar claim and uh, the car manufacturer is going to say oh quite apart from consumer relations yes I'm going to deal with this because I don't want to have to deal with all these people plus their extra extra claims and claims so it deters somebody from avoiding a problem right instead of just denial you know that well if a lawyer takes this on and goes to court and proves that we really did have a defective product and we knew about it we don't want that to happen so we'll deal with it let's talk about that and the uh, I guess the other part of class actions which is the issue of leverage and settlement by simply putting together a class and identifying a common cause of action does that provoke resolution was well, certainly uh, the thought when we first started these things in Ontario was that once you were certified, it was almost always going to lead to a, a settlement because you didn't want to run the risk. Uh, as time has gone on, people have found that, well, if it really is a claim without merit, you can take it to trial because a class action is tried like any other case. And if you can't prove your case, you lose. So a lot more cases now do go to trial, and uh, uh, there's still always, you know, the settlement dynamic. I mean, most things settle. So depending on the complexity of the matter, um, it, it may not, for example, I had a case recently where there were a thousand investors in a class action. It did get certified on a few common issues, but there were still going to have to be trials for each individual investor so in the end um, that was settled for really just cents on the dollar and um, even though it was certified the big bucks didn't get paid because it really wasn't workable to do that so there's yes there's settlement value once you get a claim certified but if you've got a good defense you can still advance it can you settle a claim uh, without the court approving it? Absolutely not. Uh, a class action, once you issued a class action claim, even if it's not certified, you can't settle that claim without court approval. And that involves a process where the court may require you to give notice to the class members. In certain circumstances, you might not have to do that, but that's rare. So the idea is that the court is standing there looking out of the interests of the class members who aren't in front of the court. Because don't forget, the only people really in the court are the class counsel, the representative plaintiff, and the defendants. And so the defendants, um, just as an example, uh, say the defendants have a problem, uh, but the uh, class representative is not really that interested and they pay off the uh, class counsel with a $200,000 they go to court and there's nothing going to the class members except some worthless voucher or something like that, the court's going to say, no, this isn't good. So once you start the action, you're in the hands of the court to be able to finish it. Absolutely. Uh, and that's uh, another aspect that we haven't really talked about very much, and that's the class action judge. It's a specialized part of the judiciary. There's always a few judges in the city or in any other regions in the province whose specialization is class action, because they do present some complex issues. And I presume there's also uh, 
a list of lawyers or class action uh, lawyers uh, who similarly have that same kind of background and experience. Yeah, I don't know if there's a list out there, but uh, uh, it, it's not for the faint of heart. I can imagine. And finally, let's let's talk about the, uh, the thing that uh, probably drives the class action, which is the fee at the end. Um, can counsel charge whatever fee they want? Uh, no. Uh, what, what happens is that you usually enter into an agreement, a contingency agreement, that is class counsel enters into a contingency agreement with the representative plaintiff. But that cannot be uh, paid out unless it's approved by the court. So you can't just make some sweetheart deal and then say you're going to get 50% of the damages and that's the way it works when you settle. That contingency percentage and how you're paid will have to be approved by the court. And sometimes they've taken a significant whack at the agreements. A lot of times they approve them because people know what the courts will accept and what they won't. Now, of course, defense, they're in a different situation. You could charge your client what your client is willing to pay. Right. Well, Roger, thank you very much. This has been uh, quite intriguing. We always end up our podcast by our, our guests giving their contact information so that uh, our, our listeners can contact you if they wish. So um, I'll turn it over to you to tell them how they can get a hold of you. You can get a hold of me through my email address, which is rhorstatblaney.com. My direct line is 416-593-3938. I usually answer my own phone. <laughs> Thanks, Roger. Thank you.